Good morning. Good morning. You're there. Have you ever found that uh, God finds ways of keeping you humble? When, uh, when I heard I was going to get to speak to the students at Liberty University, I thought, what an incredible privilege. My wife packed my coolest outfit so I could speak to you in something that matched and looked halfway decent. We got here late last night. Our bags didn't. So you're looking at 24-hour Walmart's finest. If our favorite place in Lynchburg is Liberty University, our second favorite place is Walmart 24 hours. Well, you got to look at my wife. Wave, Diana, so they can see which one you are over there. Yes, that's her in the white sweater. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. I'm married to the best-looking grandma in the country. Yeah. When uh, my kids were in high school, their friends would come over and they'd say, man, your mom's hot. And my, my sons would go, man, that's my mom. Don't say that, you know. But speaking of ways God keeps you humble, we met on a blind date in 1970. I rushed up to the prearranged spot, saw this vision of loveliness. I couldn't believe my luck. I said, are you Diana? She said, are you Jerry? I said, yes. She said, then I'm not Diana. <laughs> But eventually I won her over. I'll never forget driving down to central Illinois to the little farmhouse where she, she was raised. And I was going to ask her father for her hand in marriage. We met in the living room in the house he'd been born in. Big man of the earth, very intimidating. At one point during the conversation, he asked me if I was prepared to support a family. I said, no, sir, I'm not. I'm prepared to support her. The rest of you are going to have to fend for yourselves. He was not amused. <laughs> He's still not amused, actually. But We've been married for 37 years, and uh, thank you. Diana said on the day of our wedding, she was scurrying around the house trying to get everything ready, and she said, I don't want to forget the simplest detail. And her mother said, oh, I'm sure he'll be there. And I was. Oh, I can take it. I grow from persecution, you know. Does God keep you humble? Raising a, a family will keep you humble. Uh, Diana and I have raised three sons. Our sons are 33, 30, and 26, which we realize are unusual names for boys. But uh, now we gave them names. Sorry. Our youngest son, uh, Mike, is six foot six and has always loved to play basketball. When he was about 12 years old, he was on the fifth and sixth grade basketball team. And uh, I had written a book back then called 12 Things I Want My Kids to Remember Forever. Diana says I'm, she's going to put on my tombstone, never an unpublished thought. But uh, one of the things I want my kids to remember forever is that life isn't fair. So when Mike came home from school and said, you know, we lost our basketball game, but it wasn't fair, I said, all right, why wasn't it fair? He said, well, the other team had a player with hair under his arms. <laughs> I said, that doesn't sound fair. What, how old was he? And Mike said, well, they said he was only 12, but that he's already been through poverty. 
So that's my, that's my first point for you today, is that poverty will put hair under your arms. So be careful how you vote next week. Just saying. I didn't say who to vote for. I just said be careful. Our middle son, Chad, who is a college uh, baseball coach now, when he was about five years old, he wanted me to weigh him. Now, when my son Chad was five years old, that's 25 years ago, I weighed 135 pounds more than I do today. So I was a big boy. But I said, you know, Chad wanted me to weigh him, so I put him on the scale, told him how much he weighed. He said, let's see how much you weigh, Dad. So I get on the scale, and we watch the numbers whiz by. And Chad says, hey, Dad, you weigh all of it. <laughs> so my next book was about child abuse. Our oldest son, Dallas, uh, lives in Los Angeles with three of our four grandchildren, and uh, he's a filmmaker, uh, movie director. I should have known that he was going to be a movie director or be involved in the film industry somehow. When he was six years old, he was playing under the kitchen table, and he was playing with a Star Wars action figure. He didn't... Thank you. Thank you for Star Wars. Um, he didn't realize that Diana and I were in the next room and could hear everything he was saying. He was lecturing the Star Wars action figure. He said, you may die in this mission. You don't want to go to hell because Satan's mean and he won't give you anything. He said, but if you go to heaven, you can ask Jesus for anything you want, and if it's all right with your mom, he'll give it to you. <laughs> Diana especially appreciated the theology of that little uh, sermonette. Well, I love kids that age. You know, a lot of my books are, are written for kids. Um, probably a third of the books that I've written over the years have been for kids, and I love to get letters from them. Um, when my books are read on the radio or on tape, they, they always say this is a book by Jerry B. Jenkins, so I get letters from kids to Mr. B. Jenkins. They think that's my name. But uh, I brought a couple samples today of, uh, of letters I've got from kids I thought you might get a kick out of. One little boy wrote me, and he said, I have a sister and I have a dog. I like dogs. <laughs> One wrote, your books are a great way to spend a boring afternoon in the house. <laughs> I knew what he meant. You know. One wrote, your books made me a huge reader and they made me a Christian. After reading them, I stopped lying so much. <laughs> but here's my all-time favorite. This is from a little girl. She writes, Dear Mr. B. Jenkins, I'm 10. I'm in fourth grade. I like your books, but they need more dogs, cats, frogs, cows, horses, mice, birds, tadpoles, fish, sharks, <laughs> alligators, pigs, ducks, chickens, owls, dolphins, bears, whales, opossums, rabbits, hamsters, <laughs> Big cats, big dogs, zebras, yaks, and shellfish. <laughs> Call me, we need to talk. <laughs> I was tempted to call her, I really was. Well, other ways the Lord has kept me humble over the years, 
I was assigned back in the 1970s to write a book with the world's strongest man, Paul Anderson. He's now in heaven. He was an incredible physical specimen. He was the gold medal winner in the Olympics in powerlifting in 1956 in Melbourne. He was five foot nine and weighed 375 pounds. His neck was 20, 22 inches around. His thighs were 36 inches around each. He was like a walking fire hydrant. But in, in interviewing him for his life story, we were in Vidalia, Georgia, where he runs, he, where he ran homes for, for orphan boys. He could do something back then that nobody else in the world could do, and very few can do today. And those of you who are weightlifters or weight trainers will know this. There's a move in weightlifting called the clean and jerk, where you clean the bar to your chest and then jerk it over your head. He could do this with almost 600 pounds. It's, it was just unheard of. And uh, I wanted to get a picture of him doing that. So he had the boys come out and set up the barbell. He, he put the iron bells on the bar, and he was warming up. I got the camera ready. He fired that 600 pounds over his head. I shot a picture. He dropped the bar, and I said, I was really kind of hoping to get several different angles. He said, well, you don't just hold 600 pounds over your head all day, you know, and I could see the wisdom of that. But he told me he had a set of phony weights made out of wood where the bells, he would trade out the iron bells and put wood bells on. They'd been painted black, and he said, it looks like the real thing, and I can hold those up for as long as I want. And I was kind of dubious until the kids brought these things out and set it up. It looked exactly like the other bar. And he held it up over his head, and I circled around him, and I shot several different pictures, probably a couple minutes of him holding that bar up, and I got a great idea. Wouldn't my wife love a picture of me with what looks like 600 pounds over my head. So I asked him if, if he'd shoot a picture of me with the, with the phony weights. He was happy to do it. We have the world's first photographically recorded attempt at a double hernia. <laughs> the phony weights weighed 275 pounds. <laughs> I got those things about an inch off the ground. The color has drained from my face. And I was right, Diana loves that picture. That's great. <laughs> Well, another way the Lord keeps me humble, he, I, I was once asked to speak at a Ravi Zacharias weekend. You know who Ravi Zacharias is, right? Yeah. This is one of the great minds of this or any other century, and he had speakers like Dr. Joe Stoll, who was president of Moody at, at the time and is now president of Cornerstone. He had Dr. Tim Keller from Manhattan, the big church in Manhattan. And then I was to finish. Now, I'm not a theologian or a scholar. I do shtick, as you can tell, and I just have fun and try to be inspirational. So basically, as the last speaker at a Ravi Zacharias weekend, after he had spoken and these other guys too, about all I could do was get up there and apologize. But I did my thing, and afterward, a woman rushed up to me and she said, that was so refreshing, I was so tired of thinking. <laughs> I could take it. I knew what she meant. Well, I've had people in my life who think that God has assigned them to keep me humble too. We had a, a salesman at Moody Press when I was in charge of the publishing operation there and he thought that God had assigned him to keep me humble so whenever he visited a bookstore anywhere in the country and saw my books on sale he would take a picture of it and send it to me. So I have pictures of my books on sale in bookstores all over the United States on sale for two dollars, one dollar, ninety percent off, Jerry Jenkins' books by the pound. 
He sent me a picture of a, a table that was full of books and it had a little sign on it that said, buy any book on this table and you get a Jerry Jenkins book free. <laughs> and then he added another picture and it had it, it the same table but it had an, another card on it. It looked like his handwriting and it said, buy any two books on this table and you don't have to take the Jerry Jenkins book. <laughs> so that's how the Lord works on me and, uh, and it works. Well, I'm a real believer in, uh, in Christian education. All three of our sons went to Christian schools. All three of our sons graduated from Christian colleges. My wife graduated from Christian college as well. I serve as chairman of the board of Moody Bible Institute, and so I bring you greetings from the staff and students there. And uh, I also bring you greetings from my dear friend and colleague, Tim LaHaye, who's a great friend of Liberty University, and of course his wife serves on the board here. They are dear friends, and I, I do hope that, uh, that many of you will sign up for the Writers' Conference that's tonight and tomorrow. I'd love to see you there. If you have any interest in writing or think that you might, we'd love to have you. Well, I'm going to be out of your hair soon here, but I wanted to share briefly today uh, about the privilege of a lifetime I had several years ago when I was asked to assist Billy Graham with his memoir, Just As I Am. In case you're wondering, Billy Graham is the same behind closed doors as he is in public. He's a truly humble servant. And, you know, you hear the cliché about somebody who comes into a room and, and lights up the room. That is M Billy Graham. I mean, he really is a, a person who draws people to himself, but he doesn't do it on purpose. In fact, he doesn't like the spotlight. I was amazed. We went to one of his crusades in uh, Ohio. And, uh, wow, we get a cheer for every place we talk about, don't we? Ohio! Um, <clears throat> When, when he took the stage, the people rose as one and gave him a standing ovation, and he did not acknowledge it. And I, I remember asking him later, I said, were, did you not appreciate it when people thanked you? Because that was my impression, was that they were thanking him for this lifetime of dedicated service and this boldness that he has to preach the gospel. He said, I just hate it. He said, the Lord will not share his glory with another. And he said, when, when people do that, I'd like to dig a hole and climb into it and hide. And, and I tried to tell him that I didn't think people were trying to make a star out of him. They were just trying to, to, be, to show gratitude for this wonderful uh, example he's been. But he's truly humble. It's a Christ-like humility, and, and that draws people to him. A lot of people don't realize, and of course not too many people realize that I helped him with the memoir, but this happened when I was supposed to write the first Left Behind book. And I remember asking Dr. LaHaye and my agent and the, the publishers at Tyndale if I could delay the writing of that first book for a year so that I could assist Dr. Graham with his memoir. And of course, none of us knew at that time what would become of Left Behind. I, I wonder today if they would have given me permission to do that had they known, but it really was a, a wonderful thing for, even for Left Behind to spend that much time, to spend the better part of a year interviewing Billy Graham and having access to all his materials really informed the writing of Left Behind. To be around somebody with such a spirit of evangelism uh, I think was a good thing for, for the fiction series as well. One of the treats of uh, working on that book was to, to get to interview Be George Beverly Shea. You know, you've probably heard that Dr. Graham next month will turn 90. Uh, Bev Shea is 10 years older than Mr. Graham, so he's soon to be 100. And uh, it was great to get to interview Bev Shea, uh, the great soloist. He told me that uh, one time he was in O'Hare Airport and he saw a couple pass him and they were kind of staring at him and he thought they might recognize him and sure enough the man came running back and said aren't you that guy who sings for Billy Graham and he said yes I am and he said oh honey come here it's George Beverly LaHaye 
I thought you might get that one since you know Beverly LaHaye. You don't know Bev Shea, that's the thing. They're too young, aren't they? Sorry. Well, he did tell me a great story about singing How Great Thou Art. That's his famous, you know, anthem. And uh, he wanted to sing all the verses for one audience, and so he, uh, he memorized the verses. And he got to the third verse and hesitated while the organist pl played an interlude. He said when he got to sing the fourth verse, he forgot the words, just absolutely lost the lyric. And he said, so I just made them up. I sang, and when I look up into the air, I see the birdies everywhere. <laughs> he said nobody was even the wiser. They nodded and amened, and they loved it. But When I was interviewing Mr. Graham in his uh, library, this is when his offices were in uh, Asheville, North Carolina. They've now moved to Charlotte. They've now moved to Charlotte, where his son Franklin runs the ministry. But uh, we were in the office, and, and uh, I had him wired up for sound. Whenever I interview somebody for a book, I have a lapel microphone on me and on them so we get good fidelity for the transcriptionist. And uh, he told his secretary to, to take no calls for the next uh, few hours while we worked. We'd been interviewing for probably 20 minutes when his secretary came back and said, there is a phone call you'll want to take. It's, uh, and, and so he, I had to get him all unwired and, and shut off the recorder and everything. And he left to take this call, and I assumed it was from his wife or from one of the kids or something. And, but I thought, when he gets back, I'm going to try to be funny. So he came back about 20 minutes later, and I said, so, Mr. Graham, what did the president want? And he said, well, I'm not at liberty to say. I was only kidding, and I was right. And he looked at his secretary as if she shouldn't have told him who, shouldn't have told me who was on the phone. And I said, oh, she didn't. I just was trying to be and I wasn't, so I'm sorry, you know. Um, one time, he went, when we were working down there in, uh, in North Carolina, he wanted to go to church one Sunday morning, and he told me that he, even in his own church, he has to go late because people want to talk to him and they want to touch him. That's a very strange phenomenon. People like to touch him. But he said he doesn't like to cause a stir, so he said, let's go to, to, to our church service, but we'll just go when the music has already started. And so we got to the church, and we slipped into a back pew while they were singing. And I was sharing a hymn book with Billy Graham, and I thought, what an incredible privilege. It was, it was really moving to me to, to realize that someday I'd be able to tell people like you that I got to share a hymn book with Billy Graham. The irony of it was I was so overcome emotionally, I couldn't sing. He can't sing anyway. He's only got one note, and it doesn't match anything on the scale. So he was just sort of growling. So we weren't singing, but we were sharing a hymnal. His wife Ruth, as you know, uh, she died uh, several months ago, but uh, she was one of the funniest women I've ever met. We were, we were interviewing at his house on top of uh, Black Mountain, and uh, we were in the living room, and he and I were talking on tape, and Ruth kept correcting him from the other room. She'd say, now, Bill, that wasn't 1951, that was 1952. And that wasn't Biff, that was Cliff. And she'd go on and on and, and uh, making these corrections. It wasn't Boston, it was Detroit. And Mr. Graham was rolling his eyes. Finally, he said, Ruth, would you just let me handle my own memoir? She said, I would, Bill, but it's starting to sound like your forgetoire. <laughs> One time we were working at a, at a hotel. He wanted to be off-site and be away from the phones in the office, and so we were in a hotel, and he wanted to get a haircut. So we went down to the barbershop in the hotel. Mr. Graham was getting his haircut, 
And the manicurist in the shop struck up a conversation with him. She said, so what do you do? He said, I'm a preacher. She said, oh, I don't care for too many preachers. I don't listen to too many preachers. She said, in fact, the only one I really like is Billy Graham. He said, you like Billy Graham, do you? She said, oh, yeah, he's wonderful. I love how he preaches straight from the Bible. I really learned from him. He said, well, thank you. I am Billy Graham. She said, oh, you don't even look like him. So the barber backed up and pointed at him and mouthed to her, it's really him. And she said, oh, my God. Mr. Graham said, no, but I work for him. (laughs) You know, one of the things that I teach uh, writers is that any article or book can't simply be about something. It has to be for the purpose of something. And therefore, it has to have takeaway value. So when somebody finishes a book, they shouldn't simply be informed. They should be motivated. And so I started wondering, after almost a year of interviewing Dr. Graham and seeing all the files and all the videos and tapes and movies from the past, what is the takeaway value of this book? We've got all the statistics, we've got all the stories, but what will the reader take away when they're finished reading? And uh, I went about asking this question the wrong way. I started out by, we were sitting in his office, which was very modest, very sort of dilapidated furniture, and we were sitting almost knee to knee, and he was sitting in a a broken down old chair, and as tall and broad as he is, he's very thin, and uh, he was just sitting in this chair, and and I said, you know, people put you on a pedestal, they... They uh, looked to you as an example of the Christian believer, and he started waving me off. He said, you know, they really shouldn't do that. And I said, well, I know they shouldn't, but they do, and, and people almost see you as the Protestant pope, and, and uh, you're an example of the believer in word and deed. And he said, you know, really, they shouldn't do that. He said, when I think of the number of times that I've failed the Lord, I feel this low. And he reached out of his chair and put his hand flat on the floor. And I I was moved almost to to where I was speechless. I'm talking to Billy Graham. This is the man who's been an international evangelist for decades. When he opens his mouth, people come to Christ. It seems everything he does, everything he touches, becomes spiritual gold. His writing, his speaking, everything. And he's got his hand flat on the floor, and he's saying, the... I feel this low when I think of the number of times I've failed the Lord. And I, I kept trying to get at the, at the question, you know, I, I wanted some takeaway value, I wanted somebody, somebody to see how he lives his life so they can, it can be a model to them. And finally, I, I hit on it, I think by luck or just by running out of other questions, but I said, how do you maintain your own spiritual disciplines? And then he came to life. He leaned forward, he had his, knee, his elbows on his knees, he was staring at me with those steely blue eyes of his. He said, you know, God doesn't hide that from us. It's not, it's not a secret. He tells us in Scripture what to do to maintain our spiritual disciplines. He says we're to search the Scriptures and pray without ceasing. And he said, and I do that. Now, I was taken aback. Here this man had just said, I feel this low when I, feel, when I think of the number of times I've failed the Lord. And then he's telling me, I pray without ceasing. I said, 
you pray without ceasing? I had always hoped that that praying without ceasing was figurative or symbolic because I've never been able to manage that. I don't know about you. He said, I do. And I have every waking moment since I became a Christian as a teenager. He said, I'm praying right now as I'm speaking to you that everything we do and say will glorify Christ and not me, that this book will have an impact around the world. I mean, I was moved. And yet I have to admit, I was still thinking about takeaway value, and my fear was we'd set the bar too high. Are we asking people to pray without ceasing? And I said, how does, your, how does your searching the scripture, what form does that take? And he said, well, wherever I am in the world, if I'm visiting a friend on the continent or if I'm preaching somewhere in a different country, if I'm home or if I'm in a hotel, if I'm in my office, the first thing I do in the morning is I take my Bible and I open it and I put it somewhere where I will notice it during the day. And when I notice it, I'll stop and I'll read a verse or two or a chapter or two, or for an hour or two. And he said, it's not for sermon preparation, it's not for writing books, it's just for my own spiritual food. It's a spiritual meal. And I thought, now we're getting somewhere. Everybody wants to have a good prayer life and a good devotional life, a good Bible reading life. I said, so what do you do when you miss a day or two? He cocked his head and he said, I, I don't think I've ever done that. I said, you never miss? He said, no, I don't think I ever have. I looked over his shoulder, and there on the corner of his desk was that open Bible. He said, I told you, it's, it's my spiritual food, and I don't, I don't want to miss a meal. I remember driving home that day, back to the hotel, and I was thinking, did I fail? That was really interesting stuff I heard from him, moving stuff, challenging stuff. I hope it's challenging to you. But I was thinking, is there takeaway value? Is that bar set so high that nobody can do it? And, and I, I just had to remember how he began those answers. He said, it's not a secret. God doesn't hide it from us. And so when we wonder why of all the evangelists, preachers, pastors, writers, why is it that Billy Graham seems head and shoulders above all of them the difference is that the Bible says we're to search the scriptures and to pray without ceasing. And he does it. He does it. That's the difference. That's the challenge. Do you want to really serve God? Do you want to really be sold out and surrendered to God? Do you want to be used in a way that's incredible, not for your own glory, but for Christ's glory? Do you want to stand for God's grace even if you have to stand alone? Search the scriptures. Pray without ceasing. Be one who does it. Thanks so much.